We've been working through a study on the letters to the church in Thessalonica, and uh, we come to a part in the letter where the Apostle Paul breaks out the implications of uh, living as the people of God in some practical ways, and he touches on three things, how we relate to sexuality, to work, and to death. And so this morning we're going to go out of order, and I'm going to be talking about work this morning, because the last Sunday of the month... We have our grades 1 to 5 kids in with us because we want to uh, train our children to be able to sit under the teaching of uh, God's Word. And so each month we have them in uh, for us. And so we're going to go out of order because I don't want to be introducing themes prematurely that families haven't had discussions about. So we're going to be talking uh, about that first section next week. And we're going to be diving into uh, the implications of our faith and our work this morning. So our text comes from... 1 Thessalonians chapter 9, uh, verses uh, 9 through 12. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that you walk properly towards those who are outside and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Paul starts to touch on one of the problems in this church. It's a big problem because it comes up again in his second letter. And the problem is that there's Christians that aren't working. And it's not because they're incapable of working. It's not because the region is in a recession and they can't find work. Thessalonica is a, is a cosmopolitan, busting city. There's a lot of opportunities for work. The problem is, and we get this from language and from other comments Paul made, that they feel like they are above certain kinds of work. So they're idle, and they're not working. And as well, and it comes out in the second letter, we'll get to this you know, weeks down the road, some of them are naive about what, what the return of Christ is going to mean in terms of their time and their lives and their livelihoods and so they're not working so he's, he's got a problem that he wants to address and so um, we're going to look at our faith and our work today uh, we're going to explore three aspects of it firstly doing good work secondly our motivation for work and then lastly our expression in our work and this is all going to be framed of course in the good news of the gospel because though we all want to be diligent students of the word and i'm going to dive into stuff this morning sunday morning is primarily a celebration of god's grace of his goodness and so we're not going to put jesus off to the side and uh and just dial into a conversation around work my prayer and my hope is that you will see how the goodness of god's grace of his gospel of the implications of being his child of what it means to have your heavenly father care for you and love you actually infuses and reframes your work so uh as i mentioned there's a big uh, problem in, in thessalonica certain work is beneath them part of this is because of the cultural con- conversation around getting your identity from your work and looking down on particular kinds of work and elevating and esteeming other kinds of work this is important and that's not you're an important person if you do this you're not an important if you don't do that at the time of the writing of this teaching the writer's strike out of hollywood is in day 145 and if you are a writer or an actor or involved in any of the making of any of the uh the films or in the entertainment industry 
that is perceived by many of us as exciting work, meaningful work. Uh, you know, we're, we're telling stories and narratives, uh, you know, important stories, provocative themes. It's, you know, uh, giving people uh, an opportunity to sit back and, and enjoy beauty through art. All of these things are, we say, that's important work. And yet, um, imagine if we were in day 145 of a garbage strike. The cities would be, we would be to our knees in disease and rodents and it would be disastrous. And uh, some of us would be mature enough to say that is important and good work and that's wonderful work. Others would be embarrassed or ashamed, ashamed of doing that kind of work. And so this same sort of conversation around work and identity existed in the first century and that's kind of what's going on here. And, and it seems odd in a sense to be like, you know, we're, let's dive into talking about work. In Kitchener-Waterloo, a region where we're constantly flexing on our work, garnering sense of status and value from our work, right? How hard do you work? Where do you work? What's your title at work? Uh, if we are workaholics, our colleagues esteem us as heroes. If we have to sacrifice our family on, on, on the altar of, or our friendship on the altar or marriage on the altar of building something amazing, culturally people are like, yeah, I mean... That's the cost to do in business. After all, isn't the most important thing in life building a, a monument to vocation? This is the city, this is the culture that we live in. We wear the grind like a badge. But the gospel actually, when we understand the implications of God's love for us as his children, as his beloved creation, it reframes work and actually infuses us with rest. So that from deep soul rest, we have a completely different attitude toward our work. So first, let's look at doing good work. Doing good work is, for the apostle, an act of love. This text that we just read, he starts talking about love and he goes into work. He says, I don't need to write to you about love, and yet here he is writing about it. And it's not because there's two separate conversations. First there's love and then there's work. Uh, the, the numbers that are in our Bibles for chapters and verses are there to help us locate things. But sometimes those numbers do things to us uh, sort of mentally where we feel like, okay, one thought has stopped and another has begun, which isn't always the case. And this is one of those examples where Paul is essentially saying, you know, there's, there's a new application for love that you guys have not considered. In fact, there's a new application for love that you're failing in. And it is the love that is expressed through your good work. He says, I don't need to write you about certain kinds of work. You guys love the Christians in Macedonia, which as I talked about last week, was 200 kilometers away. So how are you loving people 200 kilometers away? Well, obviously, when those Christians are coming into the city on business, there's a lot of hospitality and caring, sharing, mutual worship, prayer. There's a lot of spiritual disciplines happening, and Paul's like, I don't even need to write to you about that. You love them. But I want to talk to you about another form of love that, is, that you're actually devoid and lacking in, and it's how it reframes your work. Now, the kids are in the service today. Some of you kids might have seen a movie. It's an old movie now, but it's called Monsters, Inc., Monsters Incorporated. There's these two buddies, the big, huge, fuzzy, blue monster, Scully, and the little green monster who looks like an egg, uh, Sully. Sorry, did I call him Scully? Sully, Sully and Mike. And every day that Mike, the little green monster, goes to work, there's a lady that works at reception, and she says his name like, Mike Wazowski. She doesn't want to be there. Mike Wazowski. Did some of you kids remember that? Any of the big kids remember what I'm saying? Okay, good. Whew. 
That was almost a sermon illustration gone awry. Okay, so Paul is not patronizing Thessalonica by like, guys, you gotta love each other through your work. There's something in having a divine vision for work that Paul doesn't really exposit here, but let's remember he's an expert in the law. And he wants to go back to this little baby church that he got run out of town three weeks in. So he has intentions of coming back and teaching them. And I am going to make a hypothesis that being an expert in the law and being very familiar with all the wisdom literature of the Proverbs, the wisdom literature of the Proverbs has a lot to say about our character, our integrity, and the way that we see work in light of God's love for us in the gospel. It's like a prism with multiple lights shining upon it that speak to the way that we view our vocation. And I'm going to venture a guess that the Apostle Paul has every intention of coming back to this young church and saying, you need to think about work a little different than the way your city thinks about work. And that's what I would say to us this morning. We need to think about work a little differently than the way our city thinks about it. Because there's really, I suppose, two ditches. The one ditch we've sort of talked about. We can make an idol of work, get our identity from work, status, sacrifice people on the altar of work. That could be one ditch. But the other ditch is we hate our work. We, we, only, we really only work so that we can make money, so we can do what we really want to do in life. And that's the other ditch on work. Because there is no, uh, there is no uh, goodness in sort of forsaking the potential beauty in this thing, the contribution that I could make to contribute to the flourishing of the city through my God-given gifts, through our God-given gifts, through our work, to just forsake all that and say, this is just about a paycheck. I just need to get bigger toys, more toys, more comfort, more happiness. The more money I make, the more insulated I can build my life, the more comfort I can have. I can create a, ga- a greater gap between the life that I am living and the suffering of the world. And the way to create that gap is through your T4. So that's the other ditch on work. But I think that the way forward in the gospel is to see, no, actually, no, doing good work is actually an act of love. That's the way Paul frames it here. Uh, I want to write to you about love. I want you to grow in your love more and more. Now let's have a conversation about work, about not being a drain on the community, uh, but about contributing, using your gifts to the community. Again, a quick reminder. I want to be clear that nobody in here who's looking for work and can't find it, that's not, this is not about that. This is about those who could work, but they're like, I'm above that kind of work. I'm not. I'm going to be idle instead of contributing to the community. So, um, Dorothy Sayers is a British writer, a brilliant fiction writer, but also wrote excellent theological essays. And I borrowed uh, from her as I was thinking about this work today. She wrote an essay called Why Work in 1942. And... and, uh, And here's what she said. She defined work as a gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. And she's garnered that as she looks at our God and and how our God is a creative God and the way in which God works. Looking at Jesus Christ, not abstract, very concrete. What kind of a life did Jesus live? In what ways did Jesus use his work? God saw fit that for 30 years his son was a maker of things as a carpenter before he started his ministry. 
What is the significance of all this? It is this gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. She says in her essay of Why Work, God is not served by technical incompetence, and incompetence and untruth always result when the secular vocation is treated as an alien thing to religion. So she sees this beautiful marriage between faith and work and the significance of that. Let's move on. So doing good work, it is an act of, go- of love because by using our God-given gifts, we contribute to the flourishing of our city. But secondly, our motivation for work is the gospel and the implications of which lead to a quiet life of contentment. So in the ancient Greek culture, the lower you were on the manual labor scale the more demeaning that kind of work was. And the idea was, if you had the kind of vocation that kept you out of the sun, that was very prestigious. If your skin was not very dark from working out in the hot sun and your skin was light because you were in politics or philosophy or some sort of academic work, this was more favorable. You were were a better person. Like, this was the narrative that they, they sort of had about it. But then in a great contrast to that idea... We have our God who gives us a carpenter king. We have our God who chooses these apostles who are fishermen and laborers and workers. And then we have the missionary who wrote this letter making tents while he's preaching so that he's not a burden on the city that he goes to. He's making tents to pay his bills and to feed himself while he's preaching the gospel. That there is this great dignity in absolutely all work uh, because the gospel leads us to this quiet life because I'm not, I don't need my work to tell me who I am. I don't need my vocation to tell me who I am. I'm already named. I'm a child of the king. And the gospel settles some core needs in the human soul. Am I loved? Yes, by God's grace through the incarnation of Jesus as God moved heaven and earth through human history to come. To be born in a disgusting feeding trough. To live uh, a life of poverty. To be uh, told he was a bastard for most of his life. Jesus uh, humiliates himself so that he could rebuild the bridge between us and our loving creator. Because frankly, apart from his grace, we don't want him. And because that's true, we know we are loved. Therefore, I don't need my work and my colleagues and my status and the letters after my name to tell me that I'm loved or that I'm, or that I'm accepted. Am I secure? If I know I'm a child of God, I know I can take his promises to the bank. And his promises are, look at the birds, look at the flowers, you're good. God will provide for you. He will take care of your needs. You will not lack anything. Be diligent with your hands. Go and... Uh, Uh, be faithful and God will care for you. He will provide for you. If I know that this is true, the the gospel has settled that issue. And so I approach my work with a very different perspective. It doesn't matter if there's reorgs happening and things are going on in the industry and people are losing their jobs and their livelihoods. All of those things may happen, but you are a child of the king. So yes, you're going to need to work hard and be faithful and figure things out and do your homework and do your diligence, but you don't do any of that with the same anxiety as your neighbors and your colleagues. You don't do any of that with the same worry and stress and fear. You're not drowning in what everybody else is drowning in because you can be trusting uh, in the goodness of uh, God and the implications of this gospel. The answer of, of, of where is my life going has already been answered in that you know that uh, And you know that in the resurrection, the goodness of God uh, 
that the, the, that the promise of the renewal of all things, you know that this has answered the question of where, where is our life going? It is life with God. It removes the futility that we don't sit at our desks or in our cars in the parking lot or come home and put our head in our hands and say, is there a futility to everything that I'm doing? Is there a futility to the work that I'm doing, to the courses that I'm taking? I'm not worried about it. I'm not concerned about it. I can live a quiet life. He says in verse 11, strive for a quiet life. Strive for this rest in the soul. Obviously, there is an opportunity for them to be busybodies. And he speaks to that. He's like, don't be a busybody. Strive for this quiet life. And of course, this is connected to the idea that they are just using their, their vocation, using their gifts and doing the work and not needing to garner any sense of identity from it. So there's a quiet that's there. It's not to suggest that, that, you know, there's only one true love, whether it's romance or one true love in terms of vocation. I got to do this. I got to do this one vocation. And if this doesn't happen or, or the industry goes sideways, it's, I'm going to be in total disarray because that was my one true love. I was in perfect convergence of my passions and my gifts. And I lost that. And now life is over. No, no. It's that there's a, a handful of things that any one of us could be doing using our gifts for God's glory. But the rest and the quiet of the soul of knowing that our lives in the hands of God leads us to this place of, of quiet and of trust. It's looking at our work and seeing that it's to benefit others so that we can bring more of God's love and his wisdom and his character to whatever it is that we're up to on Monday. Nigel, uh, our youngest, is uh, in the final year of high school and, and he's at, at this uh, point in his life, he's... Uh, looking at to becoming a, an auto tech. He absolutely loves, he's always loved cars. He's been into cars since he was a little guy. And so once he started saying, I think I want to be a mechanic. I think I want to work with cars. He had some interesting conversations and I, with some people, I asked his permission to tell the story. And uh, he said, he would start telling family members and friends, you know, hey, I'm thinking I want to be a mechanic. And, uh, and, and he had some interesting conversations. People would say, one conversation went like this. Oh, you want to be a mechanic? That is amazing. You know what you should do? Work on heavy machinery. That's where the real money is. Right? Big, humongous dump trucks, combines. That's, that's where the money is. And then he had another conversation. Oh, you want to be a mechanic? Oh, you like cars? Wow, that's cool. You know where you got to work. They just built that big, huge uh, GRT thing on Northfield. They got to service, you know, 100 million buses every year. You want to work on buses? That's where the money is. If you're a diesel mechanic, a bus mechanic, that's where the money is. It's interesting because all of those, everything that I just named are all wonderful professions. But here's the thing. What if you weren't deciding the course of your life based on how much money you made? What a shocker. (laughs) What if you loved the work for the work? What if you wanted to live a a quiet life of contentment? Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that godliness with contentment is great gain. Imagine just waking up every day and saying, "This this is my thing. This is what I love. This is what I'm doing. And people are constantly tapping on the shoulder saying, you know where the real money is? You know, you got that job, but what if you did this thing? What if it crushed my soul? What if I woke up every day in a dizzying anxiety? That is not to say that we're to just sort of the quiet, content life means don't uh, press your gifts, abilities, and, and, and strive to uh, be excellent in your field. It doesn't mean that. What it means is if your heart is quieted in that you are God's child, promotion will not destroy you. Because promotion is not giving you what you only find in the gospel. 
But if you do not have your heart at quiet and rest uh, in God and his goodness and being his child, and you chase after the promotions, then the promotions will kill you because you need the promotion to give you something that can only be found in the worship of God and not in the worship of vocation. And so this quiet life that Paul speaks to here encouraging this church, it just flies in the face of our modern addictions to novelty or ongoing and endless um, ladder climbing because it says there's a quietness and a contentment in, in the soul. And because, the Thessal- because these Thessalonians aren't working, they've somehow become busybodies. And Paul's like, look, you don't need to be a busybody. He says, mind your own business. Live a quiet life and mind your own business. What's the motivation from all of, the, of all of this? It doesn't mean don't care about your brothers and sisters, just mind your own business. It doesn't mean, like we talked about last week, don't say things that could be helpful if you see that your brother or your sister are on an unwise or destructive path. Uh, it, it, it means to borrow from uh, Frederick Bruce, uh, New Testament prof, uh, back in the day uh, at the University of Manchester. He said there's a great difference between the Christian duty of putting the interests of others first and the busybody's compulsive itch to put others right. You'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. Well, he didn't say that part. Somebody else said that part. But um, he's like, don't be a busybody. The motivation for our work is actually the gospel, that quiet life of contentment. Last thing this morning we consider would be our expression in our work. It is an expression of our creator. Our God works with his hands. And this is the key phrase that let us, lets us know that There's a bit of an identity problem and that Paul's taking a theological shot across the bow because he uses the phrase works, works with the hands. Make sure that you work with your hands. Because as we've already discussed, there was a lot of folks in Thessalonica that would have thought if you were working with your hands, that was demeaning work. But there is a cultural mandate that we get right from the right from the jump in the book of Genesis where um, where. God says to his beloved creation, be fruitful and multiply. And the multiplication is the expansion of family and children and these sorts of things. But the fruitfulness, it's this vocation. It's this cultural mandate of building cities that flourish and reflect the glory and the goodness of God. And in the book of Revelation, it's the bookend to Genesis because that's in the poetry you get the Bible describes the new Jerusalem coming down out of the clouds. Well, that's not literal. It's a it's a poetic image of the ways of God in the city coming and kissing again, as you see in the beginning in Genesis, of now we have a renewed city, a renewed earth, and a renewed way of relating to one another that reflects the goodness and uh, the love of God, this cultural mandate. And so Paul gets back to this by saying, let's work with our hands. Let's work to please God. And when your heart is settled in the goodness of God's love, grace, and acceptance for you in Jesus, then... We're not working to appease him, but to please him. That's why the New Testament uses other language like do everything as unto the Lord. So, you're, so ultimately, yes, I'm working for my boss. Yes, I'm working for this uh, company. Yes, I'm, I'm doing this particular skill and bringing it to this particular field as a way of helping the city flourish. And that's beautiful. I'm going to try and do that with integrity. And that's beautiful. But ultimately, I'm working for God. And this is, again, where the gospel comes to play. Because if we understand the gospel of God's undeserved mercy and forgiveness for us as we turn to him, then we don't view God as a cosmic micromanager, a cosmic tyrant. It's not a terrifying idea to work for God. It's actually uh, liberating 
and actually uh, invigorating to see that everything that we do, that we put our hands to do, is for just the sheer pleasure and love of God. Paul uses this term in the Greek. He says that what this does is it enables us to walk properly to those who are on the outside. And in the Greek, it's euxemenos. And euxemenos could also be translated, have good form, win the respect. It means that there's a way in which you and I are showing up on Monday and relating to people, caring for things, even if you're working from home, the, the manner in which you do it, the way in which you relate to um, those that you are working with, that has good form, that you win the respect of all of those that, that we, we work with. And uh, the purpose of all of this, as Paul sees it, and as I say to us by extension, is that as we are, are doing this, um, we understand none of us are being saved by our work. We're not trying to appease God. But by putting God's love and wisdom on display uh, through our work, it opens up the door for loving people. It opens up the door for conversations around our motivations for our lives. Uh, Martin Luther famously said, God doesn't need our good works. Our neighbor does. And in his treatise of love and good works that he wrote in, uh, I think it was 1521, he said that the, the Christian shoemaker doesn't do good work by putting crosses on shoes. He makes good shoes. And so there's a way in which we see that the glory of God is, done, uh, is demonstrated on Mondays in the lives that we live. There's a, a famous movie, Chariots of Fire, an old movie where there's these two, uh, these two athletes who famously have these just polar opposite views on the race that they're about to run. And uh, the one character, Harold Abrams, says famously at one point at the film, he's under such anxiety and pressure to prove himself through what he does. He says, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. And in contrast, the other runner, Eric Liddell, says, God has made me for a purpose, but he's also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. There's this way of seeing that everything that I'm up to is for the glory of my creator, of the one who made me. Jesus says, the one who tries to gain their life loses it. We can't make God of our vocation. Those who lose their lives find, find it in him. And all of our work comes from this deep soul rest, knowing that our lives are in the hands of God. Because our God is a God of love who worked with his hands, who got his hands dirty. We see it in creation as he's intimately connected and loves uh, his beloved creation as he has uh, formed us. We see it in his incarnation as he gets his hands dirty and he comes in the dirty feeding trough in Jesus Christ. We see it in the crucifixion. He gets his hands dirty as he dies that substitutionary death on our behalf, living the perfect life none of us could live, dying an atoning death for those that don't even want him. He's willing to get his hands dirty. We see it in the resurrection. That it's a bodily, physical resurrection. That matter matters. That we talk about this all the time at Redeemer. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the first century isn't some missing body theory. It's not that people saw some phantasm. It's the resurrected material Christ on the beach with the disciples saying, You guys hungry? Let's have some fish. Let's have some breakfast. It is the renewal of what the human soul longs for and craves. Humanity renewed. The city renewed. This world renewed. We see it in this God who gets his hands dirty. We see it in the restoration of all things in the end. 
that our God is willing to put his hands in the dirt to bring order from chaos. And now because this is true, may we live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. May we go to our places of vocation and on campus uh, on Monday with a sense of liberation in our hearts, knowing that our very lives, our very direction, our trajectory is in the hands of God, that he will guide us and lead us. And that the way that we carry ourselves on Monday through the week, that it opens up opportunities to give a defense for the hope that we have within us, that it opens opportunities to win the respect, have good form with those who are on the outside, to love and to care for them, to use our gifts for the flourishing of our city. Let's pray.